Hello and welcome to The Rep, Rugby's economic podcast. I'm Felix and this is the show that looks at how money, power and politics impact the game we love. Shining a floodlight on challenges rugby faces as a global sport and offers suggestions on how they might be tackled. In the last episode we looked at how rugby came to dominance in Britain, its split from football and its civil war over professionalism, resulting in rugby's two codes, league and union. In today's episode, we're going to look at what made rugby the world's first global game, the economic and political forces that drove its adoption, and we'll also take a quick tap to discuss how India gave rugby its most famous trophy. So let's dive straight in. Wherever Britain went, it exported its culture, including its sports. These were predominantly cricket and rugby, as it was the ruling classes who conducted the business of empiring in the 18th and 19th centuries. Cricket was a summer sport, and rugby was the preferred winter sport. Rugby personified the masculinity and vigour of the British Empire, its universal values of teamwork, loyalty, respect of the opposition, and these were admirable qualities used to instill Britishness into the Empire's new subjects. In fact, most of the people who've played the game, myself included, would attest to rugby's values. No matter how fierce the game was, you still shook hands with the opposition at the end and clapped each other off the pitch followed by the real business of the day, the third half, or beers in the clubhouse, for those who haven't played the game. But as much as we love a good pint, us Irish didn't always look so kindly on rugby. In the 19th century, Ireland was run by Britain. All the institutions were run by the British, including the universities. And it was there, in Protestant Dublin University, today's Trinity College, who started that rugby tradition in Ireland, as early as the 1850s. However, rugby was by and large rejected, Seen as the King's Game, it epitomised oppression and occupation during a time of Gaelic revival, which saw large support for all things Irish, including the language, its culture and its sports. The people, predominantly Catholic, instead preferred their own games of Gaelic football, not unlike rugby, and hurling. In the 1870s, the RFU was founded, but early on there was a split and the Belfast clubs broke off to form the North of Ireland Football Club over a dispute of the rules. These were overcome and the national body, named the Irish Rugby Football Union, was reunited in 1879 to govern the All-Ireland game to this day. During the split, the first interprovincial games took place. In 1885, Ulster triumphed over Leinster and senior cups started to emerge in the provinces of Leinster, Munster and Ulster. The famous Michael Cusick played in the first of these senior cup matches in Leinster in 1882. The Phoenix FC prop forward went on to set up the GAA, the Gaelic Games ruling body, and renounced his love for rugby completely. By the late 1880s, rugby had grown strong with the working classes in Munster, and in the cities of Cork and Limerick we saw the establishment of Sunday clubs. Unlike the Protestants, who didn't allow Sunday sport, the Catholic Church encouraged it, which enabled the game of rugby to flourish at this time. Sunday cups were established, and they proved to be much more popular than the Protestant senior cups held on Saturdays. One of these clubs that emerged at the time was Limerick's Gary Owen Club, which popularised the towering up-and-under kick for which it gives its name. Clubs like this saw the game become a mass spectator sport, with whole towns and villages involved. But outside of Munster, Irish rugby wasn't that popular. In 1882, there was talk of an English FA Cup-style club competition, but the RFU shut it down, just like its counterparts did in England. Ultimately, Irish rugby suffered from the growing anti-English sentiment and the promotion of the newly formed GAA. Irish rugby was ending up on the wrong side, that of the oppressors. Half a world away, another British colony, Australia, 
was an early adopter of British games, including rugby and cricket. Cricket, however, was the preferred sport. A fierce rivalry was born out of the England-Australia cricket series known as the Ashes, spurring on an anti-British sentiment. In the mines Victoria, the Irish workers, now building lives for themselves, tapped into this anti-British sentiment and rejected the games as their fellow Irish did back home. Instead, these new and young Australians developed their own version of football, Australian rules, or Aussie rules. Crudely described as Gaelic football with a rugby ball on a cricket pitch, Aussie rules was an altogether different concept. Rugby was ruled out in all but Sydney where it survived through the British universities, where it was, like in England, a game for the elites. This changed in the early 20th century with the arrival of Rugby League. But soon after, World War I started and the rugby union club suspended play as it didn't seem right to play sports, whilst young men were off dying at war. But none of the other sports suspended play, so people went to watch them instead, and rugby union lost its audience and league would overtake it as the code of choice in Australia. As a result, the international team, the Wallabies, lost its best players to league and professionalism, and couldn't compete at the top table of international rugby for most of the century. It wasn't really until the 1980s did Australian rugby become a force on the international stage again. At the back of the scrum, newly independent America had the promise of being the place where rugby could find its home away from home. The independent states were run by the colonial classes, ex-Britons, and they loved British sports. Rugby found a home, like in most places, amongst the Ivy League East Coast universities. Yale and Harvard, the early adopters, using rugby as just another game where they could perpetuate their rivalry. But, in typical American fashion, it wasn't long before they wrapped the game in the Stars and Stripes, altering many of its defining characteristics. This started with the addition of new rules and for the first time, padding. Yeah, you can see I'm not not a big fan of that. It was a young Walter Camp of Yale University who was accredited with these rule changes, which included throwing the ball forwards, blocking, and the line of scrimmage instead of rugby scrum. The game from rugby school was unrecognisable from that at Yale. Camp had created American football. American football captured the imagination of the public through the college game and spread further. By 1892, the sport was embracing the American dream and had its first professional players. The American Professional Football Association was established and quickly changed its name to the National Football League, or NFL. Rugby in America all but disappeared until the recent emergence of Major League Rugby, where it now has a steep mountain to climb fighting for eyeballs against NFL, basketball, baseball, ice hockey and even soccer. In terms of 2021 viewing figures, rugby doesn't even make the top 10. Pathetic. What's that? He didn't. Out the back and across the pitch. What a play. Another installment of the reps skip past. A short water break for us to catch our breaths whilst the medic does his wonders with the magic sponge. And this week... Skip Pass heats up as we venture to the jewel in the crown of the British Empire, India, looking at how this rugby desert provided the game with probably its most famous trophy. It was Christmas Day, 1872, and a game of rugby was organised between the officers of the British Army in Calcutta. A team of English officers lined out against a combined team of Scottish, Welsh and Irish officers, the Exiles. A success, the officers agreed to play again a week later and founded the Calcutta Football Club shortly afterwards, and formally joined the RFU in 1874. In its prime, it boasted 137 members, and the teak goalposts used in that first game were used by the club all the way up until its disbanding. Official record states that the club wound down in 1877 or 78, 
when the local British regiment was recalled. But local reports at the time say numbers at the club dwindled when the free bar at the club was cancelled. This resulted in more climate-suitable sports like tennis and polo growing in popularity. Nothing like closing the bar to drive the Irish and Scots away. As the club went down, captain and secretary of the club, G.A.J. Rothney, proposed that they use the remaining club funds to sponsor a cup and gift it to the RFU. The funds were withdrawn, 270 rupees worth of silver coin. They were given to a local silversmith who melted down the coins to form the trophy to be known as the Calcutta Cup. The Calcutta Cup was given to the English RFU with the request that the trophy be used as rugby's answer to the football's FA Cup. I'm starting to see a trend here. People are obsessed with the FA Cup. The RFU refused, believing that the level of competitiveness would ruin the amateur ethos of rugby. Instead, they decided that a game should be played each year between England and Scotland, and whoever wins should keep it for that year. In the first ever Calcutta Cup match, the two sides met at Rayburn Place in Edinburgh on the 10th of March 1879. However, the trophy itself already had the records from previous England-Scotland ties engraved on it, going back to 1871. Officially, the game in India suffered because it was complex and required the organisation of teams, and the Indian people were physically of smaller stature. Cricket, by contrast, could be played with as few as two people, large or small, and in the smallest of spaces. But like much of colonial times, the truth tends to be a little bit darker. Unlike cricket, the British kept rugby well out of sight and mind of the local Indians. Indians were not allowed to join rugby clubs and they were forbidden from attending games. The local population never developed the love for the game and when the British left India, so did rugby. Today Indian rugby has somewhat made a comeback, boasting somewhere between 10 and 50,000 players depending on which source you believe. The latter would put it close to our espresso-loving colleagues in Italy, with 80,000 registered players. That's not bad. From the jewel in the crown to the gold and diamonds of the Cape, the late 18th century saw Britain take control of Cape Town to protect trade routes to India from the French. This meant displacing weaker Dutch occupants, the Afrikaners, known affectionately as Boers. When that gold and those diamonds were found, the two white races fought each other in what became known as the Boer Wars. A three-year war did nothing for British perspectives abroad and the global media pressure forced a peace deal. It was decided that both groups would come together to form the new white nation of South Africa. Tensions existed in the early years and rugby became the bridge that brought them together, mostly because the large physical Afrikaners could beat the English at their own game. The cult of dominant forward-based rugby was developed that would shape South African rugby to this day. A nation was born and it had its sport, but this is only half the story. What of the indigenous populations of South Africa? Well, that's a whole other story and comes to the fore throughout the 20th century and rugby's history in South Africa is woven deeply within it. We're going to take a look at that next week on The Rep, so hold tight. Elsewhere, in the southern Pacific Ocean, the furthest from the UK as you could possibly be, was the land of the long white cloud, New Zealand. One of the smallest and often forgotten colonies, it was going to alter the future of rugby forever. New Zealand's purpose as a colony was to essentially feed the British Empire. Remember last week we said in our first episode that flocks of Britons moved to the towns and cities to work in the factories? Well, someone needed to pick up that agricultural slack and New Zealand was perfectly poised. The British took the land from the indigenous Maori with superior technology and larger armies. But the Maori were fierce fighters, a trait that would serve them well off the battlefield in later generations. Following conquest, the Brits got down to the real business of ruling. Here they saw their role as being to civilise the local population and sports were a key factor in driving this. As we've said, 
The rugby ideals and values were key to that gentrification. Games with rules were the perfect way to teach law and order and respect, just like they did with their own children through private school education. By the 1870s, rugby had been established all over the country and had aided in the unification of the country, providing the locals, now mixed Maori British, with their own identity. The inclusion of the Maori people helped the game to grow throughout the country. There were less class or cultural divides than we had experienced elsewhere in the British colonies, and rugby was what allowed that diversity to grow. So there's as good a spot as any to draw today's show to a close. With the game now global, and the main players of New Zealand, South Africa, Australia and the home nations in place, the stage is set for us to look at the next 100 years of what I like to call shamateurism. Next week on The Rep, we'll drop the tackle shields and go full contact on rugby's push for professionalism. We'll revisit South Africa and how its policies of racial segregation locked it out of rugby and skip past we'll take a look at how the International Rugby Board nearly got left on the bench for the very first Rugby World Cup. So until then, don't forget to subscribe to have future episodes delivered directly to wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you can, give us a rating or review and share with your mates. Go well. <laughs>